with me to John chapter 5, if your Bibles are with you. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. John chapter 5. We continue in our study of the book of John. I love this story. But then again, I love every story that uh, Jesus comes along and does um, amazing things. So it's pretty easy to love this one. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Anyone see the the release uh, on Tuesday night or sometime this week of the fourth chosen? This is the story. So if you saw it, you're getting it again. But I'm not going to act it out for you. You can go watch the chosen if you want that. Not going to try and speak in some Middle Eastern tongue or anything like that, you know. John 5, verse 1 After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. We're waiting for a move here, by the way. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity of 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. He said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise up, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, who is cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them and said, He who made me well said, Take up your bed and walk. He said, then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you again that we have your word as a lamp unto our feet, as a light unto our path to convict us, to comfort us, to cleanse us, to conform us to the image of Jesus. Lord, to give us courage. Lord, we just pray that your word would have its perfect work. Lord, I would too sit at your feet as all of us. We're sitting at the very feet of Jesus. We're seeing what you did here. Lord, center us, teach us, still us, quiet us. Lord, remove every distraction. Lord, come upon this place by the presence of your Holy Spirit. We know that you already have. I know, Lord, your spirit came upon Mark. And Lord, I pray you'd come upon me. You'd come upon this service. Lord, I pray that you and you alone would be glorified. We'd be drawn into your presence and healed and made well if there's anything that's amiss in our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What takes place here in chapter 5 is not only amazing, encouraging, and instructive on several levels, which we'll look at this morning, but it begins a major turning point where people will start turning against Jesus. Not just investigating him, but coming against him. We'll look at that in more detail in the coming weeks. For today, 
we'll look at this miracle and the immediate response to it. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, Made to Walk, Set Free by the Savior. Aren't you glad if you're saved, you've been set free? You've been made to walk in newness of life? No matter who you are, Jesus not only desires to save you, if he hasn't already, but for us to rise and walk forward. To walk forward. To walk in this newness of life in a very dark world that's very diseased, very crippled. We still have all that remnant in us too because we're part of this fallen world. But Jesus can help us walk. And we'll look at five facets this morning of this powerful encounter. If you're taking notes, again, a lot of times I'll do three, but today it's got to be five, and I just want to work through the text as best we can, as efficiently as we can, because we've got to have the Lord's Supper to take as well. So if you're taking notes, the first thing I want to look at is right found in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I've called this, if you're taking notes, the first point, a twofold return. Verse 1 tells us the stated reason that Jesus comes to Jerusalem. It's for one of the feasts. There were three feasts given to Moses for which every Jewish male was required to go to Jerusalem. You couldn't mail it in. No mail-in ballot for this. You couldn't mail it in. You had to attend in person three feasts. What were they? The Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles. You had to go if you were a Jewish male. Well, I got a lot on my plate. Didn't matter. Clear it. God says you were required to go for those three feasts. And of course, Jesus kept all the feasts. He kept all the commandments. He's the only Jewish man or person, period, that ever kept every single thing perfectly. So Jesus goes up as it was required. This passage is the only time, by the way, that John does not identify for us which feast Jesus is attending. Every time John mentions a feast, or every time one's mentioned, we know why Jesus was there. But this feast, he doesn't tell us the name of it. My personal thinking is that he's come back for Pentecost, which was 50 days after Passover there. Based on the wording and the timing of the text, I, I just believe that Pentecost makes the most sense, but it could have been later in the year, could have been Feast of Booze, could have been one of the non-required feasts such as Hanukkah, for example, which would have been even much later. But at any rate, Jesus returns to Jerusalem, and my map returns with it, so uh, <laughs> I'm starting to look for reading. No, I'm really not. Uh, Someone sent, me, uh, someone sent me the chosen devotional. Yeah, it has maps in it and stuff, and so, um, which, I, which I think is great. But understanding, again, he went up to Galilee. Now he's come back to Ju- uh, Judea again. And again, he's come back specifically for this feast, which I personally believe probably was Pentecost. But whether it was or not, we don't know for certain. Uh, but he would come back to Jerusalem each time he had to observe a feast, which gave him opportunities for ministry every time he came. And there was other times that he might have come to Judea, of course, that were outside the feast. But again, any time a feast was going to take place, Jesus was going to have a ministry opportunity in Judea. What I love about this, though, is one of the primary ways that God works in our lives is through following set patterns that God has already given. Six days shall a man work, and the seventh day 
rest. It's a pattern. God wants you to come and worship once a week with your brothers and sisters. Well, I don't really feel like it. When did God ask that? You'll feel a lot better in obeying than saying, well, I, 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 you know, I, my, I like to kind of build my schedule, and whatever's left, I let God fill in. Jesus built his schedule around what God had already ordained. These were the feast, I go. These were the Sabbath day, I rest. This is the time to gather, I do that. And then what's left, God will do great things even through that as well. But we, we want to fit our lives around the Lord, not the other way around. In Psalm 61.8 it says, So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. And so we have to kind of purpose in our heart. Look, you know, if I was not a pastor, did you know long before I, I, I went into the ministry in 2007, I was in corporate America before that, as you guys know by now. I actually liked my former career. I, I was doing pretty well in it. I liked it. But God says, no, no, it didn't matter. Even when I was doing all uh, the things that were non-ministry related, I was committed to being in discipleship, fellowship, going to church and worshiping with my brothers and sisters. It, it, you know, if I was not a pastor, I still would be sitting right like you guys are and devouring the Word, taking notes. It's good. So we have to, we have to, we have to say, Lord, it's not a vow, like we, we all mess up sometimes and we didn't keep a commitment and God has grace. But we, we say, I'm, I'm committed to this. You have marriage vows, right? You say, I'm committed to my spouse. No matter what, I will make time to spend time because God has said two are better than one. A threefold cord can't quickly be broken. So we make these commitments and Jesus shows us that commitments to things that God has given us are really good for us. We need God's commitments. We don't have the Saturday Sabbath mandate now, or even the annual feast. I, I don't know any of you men that went to Jerusalem three times this year, or last year, or the year before that. You can't even, couldn't even get out of the country most of last year. That's a different story. But, but we have the Sabbath principle, which is eternal. As we fa faithfully gather now on the first day of the week, which the early church began to do at some point, we now have required elements that we'll take up today, like the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, don't ever stop. We can't say, you know what? That's kind of old. That was 2,000 years ago. It's not that important. No, it remains important. We'll do it once a month from now until he returns. He said, do it until I come back. It's not optional. We don't say, well, we, we, we've got some other ideas that are better. And, and any believer, by the way, that forsakes the gathering of the body of Christ, you're going to miss not only what God wants to do in you personally, but also what he wants to do through you. Why do we know that? Because Jesus comes here for the feast, but he actually comes for the feast, and God does some other cool things, amazing things with him while he's there. In fact, if Jesus didn't keep this feast given to Israel, then he would not have had the encounter with this man, would he? If he would have said, I know it's three times a year, but I've already been twice. Actually, he'd only been once at that point, because the other feast... So you've been once. All right, I've been once. That's good enough, right? I don't need to go to the second and the third time. He wouldn't have had this encounter. God uses the reoccurring commitments in our life to bring about a work in us. We need commitments. We need uh, every night we've got to sleep. It's a, it's, a, it's a daily commitment. If you're not committed to that, get committed to it. You're, you'll actually be, everyone will like you more if you get a little more sleep in your life. Uh, I, I promise you that. 
Uh, but just as Jesus had come to Jerusalem prior for the Passover, remember when he came to the Passover, he met Nicodemus. He wouldn't have met Nicodemus if he wasn't there for the Passover. Why is that important for us? We see this twofold impetus of Jesus returning to Jerusalem. And the same can be true of us. Today you may be here in simple obedience and say, I know I should probably go to church. I know it's probably written somewhere. I know there's a verse somewhere why people do this. Because a lot of Americans today don't even know why they do some of the things that they do. Um, you may be here in simple obedience to worship and gather and taking of communion. Yet the Lord may also have you here to talk to one person today. It might have been just in your quick handshake uh, of talking to someone. It might have been that little brief interaction, something you said, and it may be something that I'm going to say that you're going to repeat to someone on Tuesday at the office. You never know why God has us in a specific place. Uh, but Jesus was there. Maybe you're online and you're listening, and God wants you to hear one specific thing, just one specific thing of everything else, one thing, it's for you and probably one thing to share with someone else. So it's important to surrender to all that God's put in his word and say, Lord, these commitments are good for us. They're really good for us. If Jesus kept commitments, we need to keep those same commitments. Uh, by principle, again, we're not required to go to Jerusalem these three times, but we are required to gather, forsake not the assembly of ourselves together. We are required to get into discipleship. We are required to be people of prayer and to make prayer and the reading of God's Word personal in our life daily. These are things that God is going to bless in our lives and He's going to do a great work. Let's turn our attention now to the scene and the specific location for which, uh, in which Jesus arrives. Uh, verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem, obviously He's in the city here, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches and in that lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed. And you see all that. Verse 4, for an angel would come down at a certain time and stir the pool, and whoever stepped in first would be made well. Uh, verse 5, now there was a uh, certain man who had an infirmity of 38 years. Unbelievable. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew what condition he had been in, and the, or the condition he had been in for a long time. And he said to him, We'll come, we'll come back to that. Stop right there. We'll come back to that question. We're taking notes number two here, an agonizing condition. An agonizing condition. Whether this is the very first place that Jesus goes, we don't know. He might have gone other places, but this is the first place that John describes. And John says he's just outside the sheep gate. Those of you that went with us to Israel, uh, we went to many of the gates. You did see the sheep gate, whether you realized it or not. It's on the north uh, side of the, uh, the Temple Mount there. Uh, the sheep gate was where all the sheep for sacrifice would go through. Remember we talked about with Passover, every Passover lamb had to come from Bethlehem because Jesus was from Bethlehem and he's the spotless lamb of God. So every time Jesus would walk the sheep gate, he was always foreshadowing that he was the lamb that was going to remove all the need for all the other lambs. So it's interesting that Jesus is by the sheep gate. He is the spotless lamb of God, as these sheep are going in, he, you, know, you can only imagine Jesus looking and saying, someday they won't be necessary. Because what we'll partake of today, the Lord's Supper, will eradicate the need for all those other sacrifices. So there's a foreshadow. But just outside the gate was a pool, likely fed by underground springs. And, and you may know this, but Israel has underground springs all over the country 
and Jerusalem has a lot of underground or several uh, that feed the city. And those of you that have ever done the under uh, the city tour down there, you'll see the cisterns and where the water comes in from these natural springs. The pool was called Bethesda, which means house of outpouring. Uh, this is the scale model. When you go to Jerusalem, I can't remember the place where it is there, but I've been to it twice. And the scale model's huge. Um, it's, you know, the size of our sanctuary. I'm Not this, that's just one. That's the pool of Bethesda inside the scale model. The scale model is probably three times the size of our sanctuary, maybe four times the size of it, because you, go, you walk all the way around, you can put you know, a few hundred people around, looking down at the temple, which is like sitting up like this high, uh, scale, um, all made out of Jerusalem stone, the exact same stone. So the Pool of Bethesda that you can see up on the screen there, uh, that's actually the scale model of it. It was very, very large, outside the Sheep Gate. Uh, John tells us uh, that it had five porticos, or five porches. Uh, did you know that it took, um, it wasn't even excavated until the 19th century, so the late 1800s, they found the Pool of Bethesda. For all of, you know, a few, uh, nearly a couple thousand years, they didn't know where exactly it was until they found it there in the late 1800s. And then it even took about 100 years of excavation, even after it was found. Many scholars thought, it can't have five porches. Uh, we don't know of any pentagram-shaped, uh, you know, like the Pentagon. Uh, we don't know of any Pentagon-shaped pools and things like that. But lo and behold, guess how many porches it had? Five, exactly as the Bible said. And so you can see I've put where the porches are. Uh, the porch would have been on the south end and then on the east and west, east and west. And then on the north end, there's no porch or portico on the north end. That was where the wall, water would hit the basin there. So it was actually two basins that were connected with five porches. Once again, John in the Bible is right. Any skeptic is wrong. And as I told the first service, the longer you wait, the Bible will always be right. It will outweigh, it's going to outlive all of us and out, well, it's going to outprove all of us, no matter what any skepticism, skepticism we might have about, well, maybe this isn't right. Sure enough, it is. Uh, but a large number, a great multitude of sick and infirmed and crippled people were crowded around the pool. Tertullian said that they came uh, once a year or only to the major feast. Now, if it was the three major feasts, Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Booze, um, he's saying that the people that would come for healing would only crowd around the pool at those major feasts. And Tertullian was one of the early church fathers. Uh, just so you know, so right there, first, second century uh, transition period there. And so if that's the case, let's say this is Pentecost, they didn't live around that pool 365 days a year. But at these high feasts, they believed that the God would send an angel that would stir the waters. So they would travel, not so much for the feast, but for the stirring of the waters to get near. And so you'd have these massive crowds there and Jesus would of course known that they would be gathered there uh, at these high feast times. Uh, there's debate as to whether uh, when it comes to the angel um, stirring the waters that John kind of speaks of it as a matter of fact. Uh, there is some debate as to whether John is describing here something that the crowds believe to be true, like some sort of legend. If you saw the, the chosen, that's kind of the way they, they kind of uh, proposed it, that, uh, that it really wasn't healing, uh, but that people thought that it would. And there's plenty of scholars that do believe that John's speaking of it more as something they believe. 
Uh, I kind of don't see it that way. That's not the way John writes it. John seems to me to write it straightforward and says, an angel would come and they were healed. So I, I kind of like, unless John says the people believe this to be the case, that's not what he wrote. I just go by what he said. And so uh, my personal thinking is that, that God did send an angel from time that would stir the waters, and it was a hearken back to the Old Testament and that the same power in Moses and Elijah and the prophets was still available to people that would look to God by faith. And so uh, however that worked, we don't know. We do know this for certain, uh, that these were very hurting people that were beyond the help and care of doctors and medicine and would have not even had the means, even if medicine could help, they didn't have the financial means to take advantage of that anyway. So they, they were in a hopeless situation anyone that was crowded around the pool of Bethesda. Essentially, they all needed help from heaven. All of them. And for reasons that the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us, Jesus comes into this structure, which you can see on the screen. He comes into the pool of Bethesda. He looks around, and out of the multitude, if not hundreds, it says a great multitude, so we're talking about hundreds, if not well beyond that, just kind of like crowded in there, Jesus fixes his attention on one specific man who's been infirmed and unable to walk for 38 years. 38 years. Can you imagine 38 years of no relief, no change, no hope? And, and probably not a lot of people caring either. It wasn't like a, most people around there uh, were going to take you on. Kind of alone in this world. Maybe you're on year three of a tough situation in your life. Maybe year ten. I'm here to tell you, Jesus is fixed on you as well. Those of you watching online, Jesus is fixed on your situation. He knows exactly how long you've been in this place that you're at. If you're taking notes, let's take a look at the next point, which I titled a simple question. A simple question. Pick it up with me again in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Jesus saw him lying there. He knew his condition. He knew the length of time. He knew the 38 years. He knew why he was disabled, how it happened, when it happened, whose fault it was, if it was somebody else's fault. And the word here in the Greek is gnosko. means to understand or to perceive knowledge of it. It even has the connotation of supernatural knowledge. And of course Jesus has supernatural knowledge. He knows everything about everything. And anything about anything. Jesus had full and complete knowledge, not only of his condition, not only of his condition, but all of his life, everything that had ever gone wrong, every sin that he had committed, all of his needs, all of his fears, everything. And he approaches the man with one incredibly simple question. Jesus looks at him, do you want to be made well? It seems like an obvious answer, right? It's not always so obvious. Those of you that have done ministry to homeless or people in prisons, you wonder why, and, and, and not only that, people that just have 
just all kinds of addictions or things in their life. And you would think people always want to be made well, but it's not always true. Our hearts are really, really hard, and sometimes we want to be free of most but not everything. I want to cut all of it off, Lord, but can I save this piece of the garment? Because I've gotten used to just hanging out and just begging, and I don't know if I'm, I don't even know if I understand what a change in life looks like. Um, William Barclay wrote, an Eastern beggar often loses a good living by being cured of his disease. I, I probably want to be cured, you might want to, but that doesn't mean that everyone always does. Pastor David Good said as bad as his condition was, he was at least familiar with it. A lot of times we're, we're scared of the unknown. Well, hold on a second. If Jesus heals me, I've heard his disciples are destined for martyr's deaths. That doesn't sound, uh, maybe I'll stay where I'm at. This man's response, though, it's based on his knowledge of what's possible. He believes that God does periodically send angels down to stir the waters. He does believe that. That's why he comes there every single time, hoping to get near the stirring of the waters. He does believe that an angel can be sent from heaven. He does believe that God can use that angel to touch the water and heal him. But he needs assistance. He needs someone to help him get in the water. He's so lame, he can't even get to the edge. And he's always late. If it is stirred, someone else gets in before him. What he doesn't know is that the creator and the commander of the angels is talking to him. The one that said, I can call 10,000 angels. The one that says, I know every angel by name. Not just Gabriel and Michael, the archangel, but because they're the only two that are named in the Bible. But all the others, he knows every one of them by name, rank, what they do. He doesn't know he's talking to the commander of the angelic host. He doesn't know he's talking to the one that created the water that's in the pool. He doesn't know he's talking to the one that created his soul. He doesn't know he's talking to the one that has the power over sin, death, disease, you name it. And by the way, Jesus' question here, he's obviously referencing the man's condition. He says, do you want to be made whole? We know that Jesus is speci uh, speaking specifically at this point about the infirmity that's kept him there for 38 years. That's the primary focus of the conversation. What's kept you here? We know that because John states it. Yet in hindsight, just like the woman at the well, when Jesus asked for a drink of water, and they get into a discussion about water, we know Jesus was speaking about something far deeper than the water in that well. And there's a deeper question here to, I believe, to this man, not just his infirm condition, which Jesus is speaking to, but I believe he's speaking through that right to his soul and saying, does your soul want to be made well too? Why do we know this is true as well? Remember when they lowered the man down into the house? And Jesus said, which is easier for me, to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Because he was pairing them up because everywhere he went, he was speaking to people's souls. All the healings were to open eyes to salvation, right? The whole reason Jesus healed people was that they would come to the knowledge of the fact that he was the only one that had the power over sin, death, and, or, or sickness and death, and ultimately sin. 
As C.S. Lewis said, and I quote it fairly often, we're souls with bodies, not bodies with souls, and our bodies will eventually die of something. Amen? Amen. Only the soul can be made permanently well. And of course the body will too, but that, that's getting a whole new body. That'll be great too, by the way. All the imperfections you've been whining about for years and me too, uh, you know, those are going to be gone. But your soul, God can heal that right now, immediately today, if he hasn't already. But Jesus asked the whole world the same question. I believe Jesus is asking the whole world, do you want to be made whole? I believe he's asking that of Israel of Palestine. I believe he's asking that of China, North Korea. I believe he's asking that of nations as well as more importantly individuals. Do you want to be made whole or do you want to kind of do it your own way? Honestly, as much as I have hated the pandemic as much as the rest of us, if Washington would get on their knees instead of trying to create every solution, we'll continue to play whack-a-mole as a country for, from now until eternity. <laughs> as soon as we solve one problem, ten more are right behind it. I said that one in the fall. I told my wife, I said, if they really think this entire thing is about the vaccine, I said, watch, watch in six months. All the attention will be on the Middle East. Boom. Where's all the attention going? Eventually, all the other problems will keep coming back. Jesus is always saying to the whole world, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? We know there's a deeper meaning based on the counsel he gives later, because later Jesus talks to him about sin. Why would that come up? Because that it's the poison to the soul, right? Sin is the, is the issue that we all need. Nevertheless, uh, we've got to keep moving. Verse 8 is awesome. I so love that our Savior has zero limitations. Aren't you glad that Jesus has no limitations at all? Because we're very limited. You can only be here right now. You can't be anywhere else in the universe, and Jesus is everywhere. We are very, very limited. Next point, a sudden deliverance. A sudden deliverance. So Jesus says to him, do you want to be made well? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man. <laughs> Again, he's only thinking of his, his finite knowledge. He's like, sir, let me tell you how this works. An angel comes down. Jesus, tell me about angels. How, what, what are angels? What, how does that work? You know, an angel comes down. There are these beings out of heaven. They come down. They stir the waters. Then you've got lame guys like me who can't move. They need a person. Now, if you would like to carry me to the water, she's like, oh, that's how all this works. Okay, all right. So that, uh, this is how it goes. But I've got no one to help me. Jesus decides to fix this entire issue. He doesn't call the best doctors of Jerusalem. He doesn't say, I'm going to gather everybody together. I'll foot the bill. You guys fix him. No arriving angels, which he could have called. Oh, you need an angel. Oh, I'll send you an angel. He doesn't do that. He says, rise, take up your bed, and walk, which was a straw mat that you would roll up. A straw mat. How's that for a comprehensive solution? Those of you online, how's that for taking care of the entire thing in a moment? Do you know Jesus has a comprehensive solution for your life and my life? And maybe certain problems that are in your life right now any issue you currently have, any issue, and I know in this room there are hundreds of prayer requests in this room right now, and online. Another couple hundred online. Jesus has a comprehensive solution for every single need in this room. Some of which we are currently hindering and don't know it. 
Others which we're not hindering, we just need His grace. His grace is sufficient to deliver anything. But for this man, just um, immediately, he finds out, Jesus can heal me immediately. He's 100% healed of an infirmity. No angel sent, no doctor sent, 100% completely healed. But he has to exercise a step of faith. He has to exercise a little bit of faith. And just like the noble when we looked at last week that came up from Capernaum, he immediately believes what Jesus said. He doesn't ask from his mat, well, how are you going to do that? How does this work? Are you sure my legs work? He doesn't say any of that. It says he rises immediately. The man was made well, took up his bed and walked. Did exactly what Jesus said. He stands straight up. I truly believe that when he looked at Jesus, can you imagine, Jesus lives in my heart, he lives in your heart, but I've, I still can't wait to see him face to face. How about you? Amen. See his nail-pierced hands and feet? I can't, I, I'm going to be glad that he doesn't look like the dude in The Chosen, even though you know that's fine and dandy and all, but I mean, we don't know what he looks like, but I know this, when I see him face to face, I'm going to fall like a dead man like John did. Because I'll have seen the Creator, the Savior, the King of Kings. And so, but I, when Jesus walked the earth, I, I, I'm sure this happened a lot. I believe that this man saw the compassion in Jesus' eyes. I believe he probably saw power he couldn't describe. Remember, remember it says Jesus spoke as one with authority. Of course he did. He spoke the universe in existence. Personally. I'm speaking about me here. Once I understood how much Jesus loved me and wanted to heal my condition of sin, it became really hard for me to say no in June of 1995 when me and my wife walked down the aisle of Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, and we're like, I had tears running in my eyes. I didn't grab a mat, I grabbed my keys, I think, in my hand. Basically rose up out of my seat and ran to the altar. But isn't the power of Jesus amazing. Yes. All 38 years are done with in a second. Yes. 38 years Jesus lived. it's over right now. Rise up, walk. Sickness, sin, death. Jesus has full power over all of it. Right now all over the world all the king's horses and all the king's men and all the king's smart people and all the consultants and all the everybody working on everything smartest minds trying to stem the stop of sickness and death, and disease, and human issues, like human trafficking, unwanted pregnancies, unwanted by people, God doesn't, He wants them. Uh, racism, and violence, murders, assaults, wars, pride, hatred. We've been trying to solve this stuff for 6,000 years, and we're no closer than we were at any other point with teeny tiny bits of fleeting success that people run for office on. But Jesus, as the hymn so aptly says, all hail the power, the power of Jesus' name. Let angels, remember he was waiting for an angel, let angels prostrate fall. He's waiting for an angel. Instantly, with no help, 38 years of bondage vanish in a moment. 
Israel's 400 years of bondage vanished when God said, stretch out your staff, Moses. There goes the Red Sea, parted. And Jesus came with that same almighty power. This man said, I just need an angel or at least someone to give me the water. Jesus is like, when I tell you what I'm about to say, you're going to know a little bit about who I am. Put on the screen who he's talking to. I know we use this verse around Christmas, which is great and all, but it's good for the other 364 days out of the year as well. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor. Here it is, Mighty God. I can speak to a lame condition of 38 years. He can speak to death, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This man is meeting the one that has the power over the universe. If Jesus is your Savior, by the way, He's your everlasting Father. He's your wonderful. He's your counselor. He's your Prince of Peace. The Middle East needs the Prince of Peace. The streets of Chicago need the Prince of Peace. The streets of New York need the Prince of Peace. Uh, Our school systems need the Prince of Peace. They also need a counselor. The parents need a counselor. Different message, sorry. Last one. (laughs) I don't know where that one came from, but last point this morning, uh, which I've taught a new awareness, a new awareness. So I don't have time to reread uh, verses 8 through 15. You can reread them, but you know what happens. Jesus heals the man. He runs into the religious leaders, and they're not ready to have a rejoicing welcome to the faith party with him. This man, though, I've titled this A New Awareness, it's things that he's awakened to. And when you get saved, you're awakened to things you didn't know before, didn't see before. The world was like in one dimension before you got saved. It was like me, myself, and I, and my personal pleasure. You get saved, and all of a sudden, the world's in 3D. Wow, Satan's real. God's real. People are more messed up than I thought. (laughs) I'm more messed up than I thought. And, you know, everyone, we're all messed up. You know, so, but you become awakened to all these other things. And so this man, he walks away with a healthy vitality that he had only dreamed of for 38 years. But he'll find out quickly that not everybody's happy when God changes lives. And maybe some of you found this out when you got saved. Uh, many people will be indifferent, but some will be downright indignant that you have given your life Christ and says uh, in verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him, it is the Sabbath. It's not law for you to carry your bed. Dude's like, I want to do cartwheels. What are you kidding me? It's the least of what I want to do. Um, But five areas, if you're taking notes, five areas of uh, awareness that he's awakened to by the miraculous works of Jesus, words of Jesus, as we come to a close here. Uh, And again, we're made alive by the Spirit of God to our own condition, but also our calling and the things that God wants to speak into our life. But we're also made aware of the world around us and what we're dealing with and the fact we're not ignorant of Satan's devices anymore towards us or just in this world system. And number one, if you're taking notes, uh, he becomes aware that Jesus alone brings healing and freedom. Jesus alone has all the power over healing and freedom at the Physical level, soul level, sin level, this man has experienced it personally. Every other effort in his life had been a dead end. 38 years, dead end. Nothing worked. 
he remained in chains. You know, it says of Jesus in Isaiah 61, it's prophetic, it's messianic, that when he comes, he will heal the brokenhearted. Right? He'll set captives free. That's what he's done here. He set this man free from the chains of paralysis or, or some sort of infirmity. He could not walk. But the same is true as Jesus sets free the chains of our soul. And even more importantly, that he sets us free the chains of our soul. Number two, man-made religion is just another bondage. I found it fascinating. I never noticed it before until I studied it. I've read this story many times, but then you, when you have to study, you get way down into things, and I'll, and I'll read information and try and find out other facts I didn't know. So this man had been in bondage for 38 years. I didn't know until I was studying this that um, the Jewish rabbis had added 39 oral traditions to the Sabbath. Fascinating. He was in bondage for 38 years, they're in bondage to the 39 oral traditions and still in bondage to them, one more than 38. Almost like they're a little more in bondage than him, and they are because eternity is way longer than 38 years. They had added all these oral traditions. Jesus, you know, they, he called them the, the, the kind of commandments of men. God sets us free to worship, though, to worship him. False religion is man's rules upon man's rules with man ruling over man putting people back in bondage. But if the Son sets you free, well, you're free indeed. Number three, rejection of Jesus is the norm in this world. It's the norm. It's not odd. I can't believe it. I shared my new faith with someone and they weren't interested. It's the norm. They didn't ask him, do you notice, reread the text yourself, you will find they did not ask him, the religious leaders did not ask him one time, who healed you? They said, who said you could carry your bed? What a bizarre question. I would want to know, if I see someone walking that had been in that condition for 38 years, who healed you? They didn't care who healed. They were like, who said you could carry your bed? You know, if you just... If you just won $10 million, I would want to know how you won that, not, so which bank account? Who told you you could use Bank of America? Who told you you could do that? You know, that kind of thing? Makes no sense. But they were so resistant to God. They didn't ask who healed him. And once you respond to Jesus by faith, you're going to realize you're on the planet's minority now. The Christians are the true minority on this planet, the true minority uh, in this world. Most people don't believe. Many are not interested. Most are just generally indifferent. But then you have a smaller percentage like the Apostle Paul was this way. He did a downright hostile. Saul was like, if I have to travel to another country to track Christians down, I'll do it. You're like, where did, that's demonic, by the way, that, that, that people would be that way. But that's what you have in North Korea. That's what you have in China. That's what you have in people that just all past, present person, uh, past and present persecution is usually a small minority. Number four, following Jesus means a whole new path. And that's good news. We're saved from something, our former flesh, to something, which is life in the Spirit, which requires 
we now have to say no to sin. But we now are able to say no to sin. Now, it doesn't mean we'll be sinless. Your spouse can prove this to you on any given week, those of you that are married. But um, you'll not be sinless, but you'll sin a lot less. You'll sin less, but you won't be sinless. Emphasis there. And less and less as you grow in Christ. And things that you'll be less offended by people. You'll be less, you'll be more and more okay being a servant to humanity instead of, how dare they talk to me that way? Thinking, you know. Pastor Chuck used to say, you'll know if you're a servant when people treat you like one if you have a servant heart. You'll know when they start treating you like a servant if you've gotten to the place where you matured uh, in this area. But again, it's a whole new path. Jesus comes back to him and says, sin no more. Your sinning days have come to an end. It's now time to walk in newness of life. You can't go back to certain sins before. You, you, you think it's a, a lame person can't sin. No, they have a mind. Right? We all do. And God wants us to put away things uh, and say just yield them to him. Yield them to him. Sin, Jesus says something worse will happen. Sin will always have consequence. There's an eternal consequence of hell if we die in our sin. But there is, there is consequences even right now. The person that says, I can drink as much as I want with no consequences, will find that there will eventually be consequences. No, you can't. I can just kind of play around with pornography. But no, you can't. There'll be consequences. There are consequences. Following Jesus means a new path, and he gives us the Holy Spirit to die to the things that we used to be enslaved to. Last point. He goes and finally tells them uh, in verse 15, and he told the Jews, it was Jesus. Jesus who made me well. This doesn't make them any happier, by the way. The name of Jesus is just as problematic as the things Jesus does. Sharing with others the name of Jesus will last a lifetime. Anything, I'm sorry, anyone, anyone set free by Jesus will by necessity be required by him to share the name of Jesus and what he's done for you and me. And you will want to share with people what he's done for you and who he is and how he has set you free. For this man, though, it marks the very first time that he ever says the words, Jesus healed me. But it won't be the last time, I bet, that he says to people, Jesus healed me, right? Paul would say forever, Jesus met me on the road to Damascus. Jesus met me on the road to Damascus. Jesus met, he tells his testimony three times, by the way, in the book of Acts. But it's the will of God that these words are spoken again and again in this man's lifetime to new unfamiliar faces with Jesus as healer, savior, and deliverer. And he wants us to find, we talked about this with the woman, well, don't worry about the millions, just start telling one person. Look for one person, one person to invite to church, one person to say, you know, I'd love to hear you, come and hear the word of God. It's Jesus' words to us. This is what Jesus did to me. Find a way to break out of the box. Say, Lord, help me. And none of us want to get to heaven and have Jesus say, why did you never share my name and what I did for you? I mean, that, that would make you want to melt in your place there. Why, how did you go a lifetime without telling anyone this man immediately is telling people? Because when you get healed of something like 38 years, you don't really care what they think. Amen. Like, man, I can walk now. I'm free. I'm going to heaven. No matter what happens, 
You know, the stock market can tank. Uh, some people can do great. Some people can do bad. Doesn't all everything in between. You have heaven if you have Jesus in your heart. Amen. Amen. And that is worth everything. And why we should be willing to tell him if Jesus tell others if Jesus set us free. Then he wants to set other people free too. Amen. Not just us. Not just us. He's called every single one of us to walk in him. And our walk becomes a cross walk because of the cross. Because the cross, we have the power now to walk in newness of life. Amen? It's only by faith in Him and only by saying, Jesus, I believe in what you said. You have the power over anything in my life. Do you believe that? It's not just Bible stories. It's not just flannel graphs about this dude. He wants us to believe, Lord, anything, you have a comprehensive solution for my personal issues. Maybe you're here today and you say, I am saved, but I definitely have hit a wall, a plateau, and, and, I, and it's maybe something spiritual in my life. I can't even discern what it is. You go to Jesus. He's, one of his name is counselor. He'll show you exactly where the impasse is, whether it's yourself whether it's a sin in your life that you're not even aware of, whether it's a sin in your life that you are aware of, that you are clinging to, hiding, whatever it is, or maybe it's not a sin at all, it's just a problem that you know only Jesus can heal, that's fine too. There's not, you can't, there's no single thing that anyone can bring up here that Jesus said, that's the first I've ever heard of that one. <laughs> not a single one. There's no temptation taking you but such as, common to man. No problem, no issue. Those of you online, there's not a single thing that Jesus says, I've dealt with that 10,000 times since Adam and Eve till now, and I'll help you with that too, whatever it is. Let's bow in prayer. Just speaking again to those of you that are online, those of you that are here, first, before we take the Lord's Supper, and we're going to take that, and this will be our close with that. If there's anyone at all it says, I, I, I hear all this, but I never surrendered to Jesus that first time with my heart. I've never, Pastor Tim, you mentioned your salvation date in June of 1995 where you can't, grabbed your keys instead of a mat and you ran forward instead of running to the temple. You just ran to the, uh, to the front altar there and, and gave your life to Christ. I've never given my life to Jesus. I've never asked him to cleanse me and heal me. But I want to do that today. I don't want to put it off any longer just raise your hand right where you are. I want to pray with you. If there's anyone here at all, I don't want to take for granted that you're all born again already. I praise God if you are. Most We orient our messages to feeding the body of Christ, to edifying the saints, but we also understand that saints bring neighbors and friends, like I got invited. Anyone at all online, anyone here at all, just raise your hand if you're in the sanctuary. Anyone. I just want to pray with you. It's your prayer. It's your heart. But I'll pray briefly, and if you're if someone online and say, maybe I just stumbled upon this and God's speaking to me. Maybe you're the one person that we were talking about earlier. Just pray this with sincerity, repentance in your heart. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for calling me now by name. You knew my name before I was ever born. Thank you for speaking to me your gospel. And Lord, I ask that you would cleanse me, forgive me of all of my sins, even the ones I can't remember. All of them, Lord, wash me. 
Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Seal me with the Spirit. Write my name in the Lamb's book of life, for I've decided this day to follow you, Jesus, by simple faith. In your name I pray. Amen. If anyone's done that, send us a note at questions at calvarychapelrva.com. We're going to have the Lord's Supper as to kind of close out the last several minutes here. But as you take the elements and the worship team will be singing, I want you to uh, think about one thing that the Lord put on my heart yesterday and again early this morning. He put on my heart again. And it was like, I felt like the Lord's just telling me to tell you because everything he tells me, he tells me too. So don't get me wrong. <laughs> telling you, telling us. And it was this just impressed upon my heart not to leave here and get back in your car holding on to any sin at all. Anything at all. Whatever it may be. For some of you, it may be unforgiveness. For someone else, it may be pride. For someone else, it may be pornography. For someone else, it may be, you know, you're drinking too much. For someone else, it may be uh, you're just not telling the truth lately. I don't know what it is. Whatever it is, God's saying, He's speaking to each person, surrender it. I'll forgive you. I'll wash it clean. You don't have to live in guilt about it. You don't have to like beat yourself up all week or next week or the rest of the year. You can be done with it. Say, Lord, I'm giving it to you. I am sorry. I'm surrendering this. Those of you online, that's just God saying, I'm very merciful and I want to heal you. Isn't that great to know? That's what Jesus wants to do. Don't get back in your car holding on to some sin. Don't harbor resentment to somebody. Don't harbor unforgiveness. If you've been gossiping, all these things still matter to God. Why do we know this? Jesus went to him and said, sin no more or something worse will come upon you. And Jesus is saying, I'm not wanting to bring worse upon you. I want to bring more grace upon you. So just as the worst team's praying, just, you just talk to the Lord and search your own heart. Don't take the Lord's supper in an unworthy manner and say, Lord, wash me, forgive me. Lord, lately I've just kind of let, let this kind of fester here and I shouldn't. Would you please cleanse me from it? And Jesus will be, it's done with. And then say, Lord, now help me to grow past it. Amen?